Sabbath blessings to uh, to everyone. This marvelous Sabbath day. I want to welcome those joining us uh, for YouTube and uh, Facebook uh, on this holy Sabbath day. We're about to get started into our message here this morning. And before we do, we want to have a season of prayer together. We want to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, give us discernment here. This is a, a very interesting and important topic. Sometimes it can be hard to understand. Uh, but may the Holy Spirit make it uh, easy for us. And so let's bow our heads together and let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day and the opportunity that each one of us has in Jesus to come together as the household of faith and to join together in song, bringing praises to thee and uh, uh, encouraging one another uh, to keep looking up to Jesus. We thank you so much for the day that we can rest from our labors and um, gain such encouragement by pressing together closer and closer. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon each one of us today. As we get into your Holy Word, we pray for discernment and wisdom. Help us to understand these truths that you are sharing with us, uh, so that we may be grounded in the truth and share it with all around us. We are thankful for Jesus, who chose to come to this planet because he loved us and he gave his life for each one of us. We are very thankful that you indeed are a personal God and you love each one of us so very, very much. We're thankful for Jesus that he has done that, that he died a death that we deserved and has offered to us uh, eternal life. And we pray, uh, Lord, that you forgive us our sins which caused that, that death there on Calvary. We claim the blood that was shed for our sins uh, in a humble, humble way, Lord. Not in presumptuous ways, but uh, from the bottom of our hearts. We pray that you forgive us as a people. And Father, we pray that you be with those who may be traveling today, especially here in the Midwest, that you will protect them. Send your angels to, to surround them. Be with those on our prayer lists. Encourage them. Heal them according to thy will. And Lord, give me the words to speak here this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. I had a little background noise there for some reason. Don't know where that came from. <laughs> Very interesting, isn't it? How things just kind of pop up. Well, uh, this is part two, beloved, in uh, the particular study in our series, The Sin Issue. And this part deals with corporate sin or corporate guilt. You could look at it that way. Um, in part one, we define some terms. And, and so let's quickly refresh our minds as to these definitions before we get, uh, get started into, uh, into the meat of the subject this morning. Uh, the term corporate comes from the Latin word corpus, C-O-R-P-U-S, corpus. And it basically means body. You know, have you ever heard the expression habeas corpus, right? It means show us the body. <laughs> you know, if you're being, uh, you know, accused of murdering somebody and they cannot find the body, well, it's kind of hard to prove that you've murdered them. So habeas corpus, show us the body. Um, to incorporate is to unite so as to make a part of another body or to be mixed or blended together, to make a group of people, group of things into a body, a, a, a single unit composed 
of few or, I mean, it could be many members. Uh, and such a corporate body that is religious in nature, we call a church. Um, and to get, us to, uh, to get us accustomed to the meaning uh, of corpus, I use the words corpus, body, and corporation interchangeably uh, in, in this study. Uh, as they basically mean the same thing in the context of, of what we're looking at here. Now, the legal aspects of a, a corporation is a body formed and authorized by civil authority, civil law, to act as a single person. It's kind of like a trust as well. Um, even though it's made up of more than one person and legally endowed uh, with the right of succession. Now, we talked about that about what succession is. But let's look at it again. We learned in part one that this right of succession, while legally recognized in its provision for corporations, is a fundamental scriptural teaching regarding the church. And uh, we looked up the definition according to Webster, in the 1828 edition. Uh, he says that succession means a following of things in order, a series of things following one another, either in time or place. He says it's the act of succeeding or coming in the place of another, as this happened after the succession of that prince to the throne. So we speak of the succession of heirs to the estates of their ancestors or collateral succession. A third thing he says is it's lineage, an order or series of descendants. Uh, and the fourth thing that he says about succession is the power or right of coming to the inheritance of ancestors. He holds the property by the title of succession. And so you wrap all that up. He's tried to describe it very, very well. And, uh, and so when we talk about corporate accountability or corporate guilt, uh, we need to understand the definition and concept of succession. Uh, and maybe the easiest way that we can, we can keep this in mind is if we think of it as a lineage or an inheritance. It might make it a little bit easier to understand. When you hear me say succession, that's kind of what it's talking about here. A lineage, an inheritance, a line of things. Um, and it can involve generations of people or groups. Okay, and That's very important to understand uh, when I talk about succession, what exactly is being meant in the con context of corporate guilt, corporate sin. Over and above and within a corporate concept, there is granted, as we talked about last time, uh, to every individual the power of choice. Um, a person can choose to be a member of a corpus, a member of a body, or a member of a corporation. Or they can choose to remove themselves from uh, a said corporation. Um, and you remember I said, except, you know, we're born into humanity. But one of the things I wanted to, to make clear, even when you're born into humanity, that corporate body of humanity, there are natural laws that are involved in that. Corporate laws. Now, you, you can, uh, maybe in your mind you can choose, well, I'm going to remove myself from humanity. And some people, sad to say, will take their own life. But they still haven't removed themselves from humanity. Um, that only comes from God to those who have spurned the free gift of eternal life and they will die in the lake of fire, thus ending their, um, 
for eternity, ending their membership in the corporation of humanity. Now, we don't want that. We want salvation for every soul. That's what Jesus wants. That's why he came and died. He wants all to be saved. Amen? And so, other than that, we can remove ourselves from corporate bodies. And we see this clearly in the book of Genesis with the case of Adam. We talked about this in part one. Um, and by his deliberate disobedience, Adam not only surrendered, you see, friends, his individual responsibility, but he left God's corporation. That's what he did. He chose. He left God's corporation and he joined the corporation of Satan. And by doing so, he passed death on to corporate humanity. He passed it on to the human race. Now, since a corporation has the power of succession, death passed upon all mankind because of their identity in that first corporation of, uh, of Adam. Uh, Paul stated it this way in Romans 5 and verse 12. He said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon how many? All men, for that all have sinned. The great news for all men that we discovered is that God has provided another corporation, another corpus, another body. In Hebrews 10 and verse 5, we read, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, and this is speaking of Christ, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Okay? There is the corpus of Adam, that corporation, that body, that church, and there is the corpus of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, For as in Adam all die... Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5.18 Therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So there is, beloved, as there has always been since Lucifer fell, two corporations, two corpus. Two bodies, two corporations, two churches, right? And only two. You have the church of Satan and you have the church of Christ. And uh, it is upon this revelation of truth, truth that is divine in origin, friends, truth that is solid as a rock, that Jesus declared he would build his church, his corpus, his body, his corporation. Um... As we were ending up uh, part one, uh, we looked at Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus here, he was speaking to his disciples. He said, who do the people say that I am? And they, they told him some of the things that they had heard. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And here we find in Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, it's remarkable Jesus' response to this. He said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now notice what he says in verse 18. He says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. You're a little pebble, Peter. Thou art Peter, the little pebble, and upon this rock, myself, the boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the boulder. Uh, 
Jesus is the truth. Isn't that correct? The very embodiment of truth. And he became the head of that body, that corpus Christi, which means the body of Christ. And he's building it upon himself. Paul, um, Paul perceived this nature of the body of Christ, the corpus Christi, you know, the body of Christ, when he wrote to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the corporation of the living God, the body of the living God, and now notice what else he says. The pillar and ground of the truth. In the margin, I find it interesting. In the margin, it says the pillar and stay, S-T-A-Y. Stay of the truth. Well, what does stay mean in this context here? Well, the Greek word means a prop. It's a prop which makes stable, a support, a buttress. That's what it means, the pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and a prop which makes stable the truth. A pil the pillar and a support of the truth. The Corpus Christi. The body of Christ. The corporation of Christ. The church of Christ is to be the pillar, the stay of the truth of God, and thus the visible means through which truth is to be revealed to mankind. In Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said, in speaking of himself, we're talking about, remember, he's, he told them, he said, you, Peter, you're, you're a pebble, I am the boulder that I'm going to build my, my house on, my body, my corporation. Thinking in that context, notice what Jesus said in Matthew 21, and verse uh, 42. He said, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. In Acts 4, verses 10 to 11, Peter said, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now that's interesting. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said, the same has become the head of the corner. Peter here, he says, which has become the head of the corner. He's echoing the words of Christ. What is, and here, and, and, and think of this question, think about this question. What is so important about the cornerstone of a structure? You know, now, I've, uh, I was raised um, with a grandfather and a father that pretty much did everything themselves. I've helped my father build structures and homes. I built my own uh, home. Um, now, we don't use stones, <laughs> Okay. You know, that's going way back. They, they use other uh, materials today. Uh, we framed houses up. But the, the corner is very, very important in a building. The cornerstone that Christ is talking about here 
It's sometimes called the foundation stone. And it's derived from the first stone that is set in the construction of a, a building. It, it's the first stone in the foundation. It's put in the corner. It was the most important because all the other stones in the walls will be set in reference to that stone. So you would determine the, the position of the entire structure by the corner stone. And the cornerstone, it was usually one of the largest. It was the, the most solid and the most carefully constructed of any part of the building. The cornerstone was very important part of the structure because it also, not only was it the reference for the rest of the building, but it bound together the two walls that met in the corner. And today you don't really see a true cornerstone um, as other materials, I said before, are used in construction. So a cornerstone essentially became a ceremonial stone. And, and I think we've all seen these. Have you ever noticed, you know, brick buildings and whatever, there's a stone set in a prominent location on the outside of the building, and it has uh, stuff inscribed in it, you know, like the date that it was made, that the building was constructed, the names of the architect, the builder, or other, you know, uh, significant individuals about that, you know, the building of that building. I think we've all seen those. Uh, that's, that's what they uh, represent. They represent the cornerstone. Now, Jesus describes himself as the cornerstone that his church would be built upon. A unified body, a corpus of believers, body of believers, corporation of believers, church of believers. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the pillar and stay of the truth, for he is the way to life and the what? The truth. And friends... Only as it adheres to the truth can it truly be the church of the living God. It's not enough to, to merely uh, assent to the principles of truth. As I said in, in part one, it, it's not enough to have the law of God, to have the writings of the prophets, to have the hospitals, the schools, and all this. If you just have a mental assent to the truth, are you really the church? It's not enough merely to assent to the principles of truth. It must be fully reflected in the life of the individual. Then it will be reflected in the life of the corporation. It'll show who you belong to, which corporation. And so through the atoning sacrifice um, of Calvary, Jesus made it possible for the sons of Adam to become the sons of God. Thus, changing their identification from the, the corpus of Adam to the corpus of Christ. From the church of Adam to the church of Christ. And this accomplishment of Christ and the provision made for man is spoken of as the way out. Or the exodus, if you look at the Greek Bible. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 of the Greek Bible... In telling of the coming of Moses and Elijah to Jesus at the time of the, the transfiguration. Uh, it states that they spoke of his decease which he should accomplish at 
Jerusalem. Luke 9.31. That's what it says in the Greek Bible. Now, the King James Version uh, translates uh, decease. Well, actually, it's the Greek word in the King James Version as exodus. And it means the way out. The way out. So those who proclaimed Jesus as the only way to the Father, as the sole source of salvation, you read about there in Acts uh, 4.12, for example, they were dubbed by the Jewish religious leaders of their time as followers of the way. Have you ever heard that before? They were referred to as they are the followers of the way. And to the Hebrew Christians, Paul could write there in Hebrews 10 verse 20, he could write of that new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Jesus became human in order to show us the way out. The way out of sin. Now in part one, I asked a very important question. I asked a very important question about this succession of the corporation of Christ, and it was this. Is this succession, is it organizational? Or is it the succession of truth? In other words, do we find the truth by submitting to the church? Or do we find the church by submitting to the truth? The concept as to what constitutes succession in the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, whether it be organization or whether it be the truth, is, um, I think it's vividly contrasted in the confrontation between Paul and the lawyer for the hierarchy, the Jewish hierarchy of Jerusalem, in his arraignment before Felix. You recall that? When permitted to speak in his own defense, let's go to Acts 24, verse 14. Notice what Paul declared. He's speaking in his own defense, and he says, I confess unto thee that after the way, many people just skim right over that, after the way which they call heresy. They're like, what? In the original, <laughs> the original Greek, it really grabs you. After the way, remember that's what... They called the followers of Christ. That after the way, which they call heresy, so worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. What is Paul saying here? Friends, Paul's um, basis of belief, and this may come to a shock, to some of you, because you think, oh, Paul was pure evil until he met Christ on the road to Damascus. But notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying that his basis of, a belief, of belief was the same that it always had been. He still accepted the truth of the word of God. He still worshipped the God of his fathers. So to Paul, he was uh, uh, merely continuing in the truth which the Lord had revealed to him on the way to Damascus. The revelation of the promised Messiah was revealed to him 
Jesus spoke to him. But because Paul was willing, you see, to walk in that way, how was he now viewed by the hierarchy of Jerusalem? I mean, can any of us relate? <laughs> I can tell you I can relate. In Acts 24, verse 5, uh, Tertullus, he was the advocate for the religious leaders. In verse 5, he declared Paul to be, notice what he said, a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Friends, that is a badge I would wear and do wear. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like that? That, that, is, that is a medal. That's a medal of honor. <laughs> Paul was wearing a medal of honor here. And this is, but this is how the hierarchy now... You remember Paul? Paul was sent to destroy this sect of the Nazarenes and he becomes a member. And what was their response? How did they see it? Paul was saying, look, I'm, I'm just following the truth. And I met Jesus, who is the truth, the life, and the way. So I'm going to continue to follow the truth. And how did they react? Oh, he's a pestilent fellow. He's a mover of sedition. He's a ringleader of this sect. And so what really was Paul's crime as far as they were concerned? What was his crime? Well, he could no longer support the hierarchy. He could no longer support the program that they projected for the people because they had changed, you see, corporations from Christ to Adam. But they still insisted they were the corpus Christi of God on earth. The body of Christ, the church of God on earth. But to Paul, the leadership of Israel had rejected the truth. They had betrayed the trust committed to them. And he, with Stephen, believed that they had resisted the Holy Spirit to their damnation. They had committed the unpardonable sin as they were now a part of the corporation of Adam and not of Christ. And though they had received the law, as Stephen says, by the disposition of angels, they had not kept that law. But finally, as a corporate body, they crucified it afresh by rejecting the truth given by Stephen. And what did they do to Stephen? They stoned him to death. That sealed their fate. Notice what Paul says in Romans 11. Let's read verses 1 to 5. Romans 11, verses 1 to 5. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? Remember, Elijah thought he was all by himself. 
And what was God's response? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. As Paul said in Romans 9 verse 8, they which are the children of the flesh, the succession, inheritance upon which the church of Israel was based, see, children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. That succession, friends, is based upon the word of God, is based upon the truth. And Paul says they are counted for the seed. Therefore, Paul asked, hath God cast away his people? And his answer was, God forbid. What then is the answer? Noting the history of Israel in the days of Elijah, Paul concludes, Even so then, at the present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And according to Paul, this remnant is the true Israel of God. And why is that so? Because they follow the truth. They follow the way, and that is Jesus Christ. He has shown us the way out of sin. What did Paul want? Those who were still attached to the succession, the inheritance of the flesh to see. What is it that he was saying? If you read Galatians 3.29, this was his message to them. He said, if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the succession. That's who the succession goes to. Those who are Christ's. Those are the true seed of Abraham. You see, the inheritance, the succession would not come through the corporate structure of Israel, but by following the way, or Jesus, who is the truth that leads to life. And to remain attached to the earthly Jerusalem was not the answer. It was not the answer. Paul declared that church controlled by the hierarchy to be in bondage with her children. He puts it this way in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 25 and 26. He says, For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And the only way, the way, to that God with whom we have to do, friends, is by Jesus Christ. The way the truth, and the life. The succession, the inheritance, which God recognizes is not the way of organization. You just got to belong to an organization. That organization is going through. No, friends. The way is to follow the truth. The truth of God in Jesus Christ. Now, organization is necessary. But though it is necessary, it's only a vehicle. It's a means by which truth is carried. Okay? 
God's not asking us to have a blind loyalty to a vehicle, to an organization, but to follow the truth itself, who is Christ. And those who are thus loyal to truth, those are the ones who constitute the body of Christ, the Corpus Christi, the church, the remnant, as Paul says. Now let's consider Paul's question. You know, some people have said, well, you know, it was a long time ago, Pastor. Well, let's consider Paul's question in the context of today. He asked, hath God cast away his people? Has God cast away the Advent movement? God forbid. How can he deny that which is the fulfillment of prophecy which he himself mandated in Revelation 14? But let me make it very clear to you, my friends, in case it isn't clear. The Advent movement and the Seventh-day Adventist church are two different things. The latter is merely the vehicle God chose through which to carry forward his movement. You know, God never told his people that in the balances of the sanctuary, the Advent movement would be weighed. But in Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 247, he did declare through his messenger to the remnant that in the balances of the sanctuary, the Seventh-day Adventist church is to be weighed. Even at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, as Paul says. And even as there can be corporate repentance, so there is corporate guilt, right? I mean, unless there is guilt, there would be no need to, for a call to repentance. <laughs> Isn't that correct? When therefore judgment is executed because repentance has not followed the act of transgression which brought the guilt, how does God relate to the corporate identity involved? Does he separate, uh, and I hear this quite often, but does he separate the individuals who are not directly involved from the leaders who have led the people into sin? In other words, to put it plainly, Will the laity and the rank and file of the church be spared the judgments of God upon the hierarchy of the church who have led in the apostasy from the truth of God? There are so many who believe that. That's why this topic is so important to understand. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, friends. Here is the truth about corporate sin that the majority do not want to hear. And the Bible is replete with examples that teaches this principle. In the days of ancient Israel, on their way uh, to the land of promise from Mount Sinai, rebellion broke out. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they challenged the leadership of Moses. And in turn, Moses called for the leaders and those associated with them to appear before the sanctuary so that God can reveal His will 
on the matter. But guess what? Dathan and Abiram, they refused to come. They refused to show up. Well, then the Lord ordered all of the congregation of Israel to separate from the tents of these men. Because Dathan and Abiram would not appear at the tabernacle, what happened? Moses, he went to their tents. And he was followed by the elders of Israel. Let's go to Numbers chapter 16. This is where we pick up the story. Numbers 16, verse 26. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs. That's important. And touch nothing of theirs. You know, we're called to separate, and people will separate, but we're all not just called to separate, but to not touch the unclean thing. Right? And we see this here. He says, separate from these wicked men, touch nothing of theirs, lest they be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. So here were two families. Here were two smaller families corporate identities standing together two men had sinned the heads of the households okay here were ties of loyalty kinship and there was the command just not long before that from mount sinai remember that said honor thy father and thy mother right so the question is would corporate identification take precedence over individual responsibility? Or would all be held responsible for the decisions of the corporation? That body. How would the decisions of the sons of these men, Dathan and Abiram, affect their little children? Would God separate them from the judgment upon their fathers who had sinned? These are questions that each one of us need to understand and answer from thus saith the word. Let's go back to Numbers 16. Look at verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open uh, her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, did you hear that? And all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass as... He had made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. 
They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed up, closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Now, something interesting, another interesting thing about this. While the families of Dathan and Abiram fell together under the judgment of God, because they refused to separate themselves from their corporate identity with Dathan and Abiram, the record also says that the sons of Korah did not die. How is that possible? Look at Numbers 26, verses 10 and 11. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When that company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Now the question, why didn't they die with Korah? Weren't they a part of the corporation? That's the question, isn't it? You see, they were spared because they did not appear with their father and the 250 princes who had assembled at the door of the sanctuary to, you know, to challenge the leadership of Moses and, and Aaron. The sons of Korah, what they did, they chose to exercise their individual responsibility and refused to be identified in the corporate entity which initiated the rebellion. And thus they escaped the judgment of God. So they exercised their individual choice and removed themselves from that corporation, joining the corporation of God. Let's look at another, more recent example. Biblically speaking, more recent on the day of Pentecost, at the time of the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus, uh, there were assembled in Jerusalem uh, for the feast uh, Jews, and according to Acts 2.5, these Jews were devout men out of every nation under heaven. I want you to notice that these were not wicked, evil men, but devout men who had come to Jerusalem from the uh, what's called the diaspora, which means the scattering of the Jews. They came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast in harmony with the instruction God had given. So see, there are some people in fallen <laughs> uh, churches who say, well, that's just the leaders. There are good people in here. Well, these were devout men. Is that what it says? They weren't wicked men. These were devout men these were Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven who came to Jerusalem. Now, a few perhaps had come for the Passover and remained the 50 days till Pentecost, but most were not even present when Jesus was crucified. But quickly coming together due to the excitement and, and, and witness engendered by the coming of the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost, they listened intently as Peter explained the meaning of what was taking place. They heard him say these words, Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 22 and 23. Ye men of Israel, 
hear these words. Now, who's he addressing? Members of the corporate body of Israel, right? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now these men, they're listening to Peter, right? Now they, they hadn't been present at the Feast of the Passover. Those that, that weren't, they weren't moved by Peter's words yet. Because they had no part in the crucifixion of Jesus. They were not anywhere near Jerusalem during that time, right? Those who might have come for both feasts knew that the Romans had done the act. It was their hands that were wicked, not theirs, right? That's, that's their position right now. So they continued to listen. Very sure that they had no accountable corporate guilt. Then Peter returns to them again and he brings it home. Look at Acts 2 and verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel, that's the corpus of Israel, the corporation of Israel, the body of Israel. He says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, then strong conviction took hold of these devout men. I mean, whether present at the trial or not, whether a, a, a part of the mob which shouted, crucify him or not, and definitely not a Roman soldier, right? Still, they were being charged by God as guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ and accountable as participants in the crucifixion. And I ask, Why? Why were they being held accountable? Because of their corporate identity. Friends, they were members of the corporation of Israel and thus guilty with corporate Israel. And the thing to pick up from this, and many miss it, is that they themselves recognized that they were thus guilty even though they knew little about Jesus, even though they, they had maybe been on the far outreaches of the Roman Empire when it happened, even though they disagreed with the leadership of Israel, but were taught to stay in the ship because it was going through. They recognized their guilt. They themselves recognized and believed what Peter had said and were thus guilty of the corporate sin, the corporate guilt of rejecting and crucifying the Son of God. Thus they were pricked in their hearts. And they cried out to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, men and brethren, what shall we do? See, their response... Peter's counsel would determine whether they would be included in the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel or would they change corporations and have life 
Now, there are those among the professed people of God who would have us believe, friends, that the God with whom we have to do today is not the same God as yesterday. He's not the same God, the same Holy Spirit that came down at Pentecost. They vainly hope that the God who declared, My spirit shall not always strive with men, no longer holds to this dictum but will grant unlimited time to an insubordinate people for them to repent of their apostasy. The laity are told today that God is too merciful to visit His people in judgment. Look, they're advised, at all the great and wonderful institutions which God has permitted to be built as monuments to His glory. Will He forsake such a people and such an organization? They ask. The reasoning goes, God is different today. Times have changed. He may have called into account the Jewish people who, according to Christ's Object Lessons, page 294, cherished the idea that they were the favorites of heaven and they were always to be exalted as the church of God. But this will not be true of the corporate body today. That's going through. I'll tell you, friends, to such people, the God of judgment has died. But the God of holy inspiration is the same God who spoke in Old Testament times and who through the Holy Spirit gave the same message on the day of Pentecost. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 211. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 211. says, here we see the church. The Lord's sanctuary was the first to feel the stroke of the wrath of God. The ancient men, those to whom God had given great light and who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people, had betrayed their trust. Times have changed. These words strengthen their unbelief and they say, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. He's too merciful to visit his people in judgment. Thus, peace and safety is the cry from men who will never again lift up their voices like a trumpet to show God's people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. These dumb dogs that would not bark are the one who feel the just vengeance of an offended God. And as we read this, you know, we hear people say, Amen, Lord, let it be. Those leaders who betrayed their, their sacred trust should suffer the just vengeance of an offended God. Right? It's the leaders. It's not us. It's not the laity. It's the leaders. It's not our families. It's not our children. It's the leaders. But friends, this is not all of the prophecy. There's one more sentence. It reads, and as you read, tremble for yourselves, friends, and weep for the others. It says, men, maidens, and little children all perish together. Why? Why is this so? 
because they are identified corporately in the guilt of their leaders and have refused, you see, to exercise their individual responsibility like the sons of uh, Korah and leave that fallen corporation and join the corporation of the truth. And so they suffer the corporate punishment. And the God who held the sons, the sons' wives, and their little children guilty with Dathan and Abiram. The God who held the devout men of Israel equally guilty with the wicked hands who crucified the Lord of glory is the same God who will visit in judgment not only, friends, the leadership who have betrayed their trust, but also the laity, the men, women with their families, who by their corporate identity have supported that leadership by acquiescing to the apostasy and who have upheld their hands by theirs and the Lord's means. And the same will be the fate of those who stay in Babylon. They may disagree with the beast, but by their actions... Or non-actions, they show what corporation they belong to and they will be visited with the plagues. Men, women, and children. We should be trembling. When convicted of the reality that God does hold individuals accountable for the actions of leaders, and officers in a corporate identity. Devout men of the house of Israel, realizing that they had shared in the crucifixion of the Son of God, cried out from an anguished heart, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They asked that question. What can we do? And in response to this heart cry, Peter outlined certain steps to be taken by which they could escape the judgment of God. He said in Acts 2 and verse 38, He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter closed his counsel with this admonition in Acts 2 and verse 40. He said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That untoward word means crooked. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter told the devout men of Israel to repent. And that word, metatoneo, in Greek means basically to change one's mind. We covered that earlier in this series. And this change of mind for the, the men of the house of Israel involved a change of understanding in regard to Jesus Christ. They had knowledge of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth had been a man approved of God. Why then had they not accepted him prior to the day of Pentecost? Right? I'll tell you why. Because while he may have been approved of God, Jesus had not been approved by the leadership of the church to which they belonged. In fact, it was the leadership of the church who had turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. And while these devout men had not taken part in the deliberations, 
nor did they vote, you know, on the death of Christ. They had in reality consented to the crime committed by continuing in the forms and the ceremonies of the church and by quietly acquiescing to the direction the leadership was taking them. Why? Why did they do this? Christ's Objects Lessons, page 294. The Jewish people cherished the idea. Now when you cherish something, I mean, that has a strong attachment, doesn't it? They cherished the idea that they were the favorites of heaven and that they were always to be exalted as the church of God. They were the children of Abraham, they declared. And so firm did the foundation of their prosperity seem to them that they defied earth and heaven to dispossess them of their rights. How did this happen? Well, came from something that Jeremiah had said. And that was the what they built that whole foundation upon. That's what they built their hope on, was the word of God to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, God said forever, didn't he? Thus say the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. So Israel saying, we still have the ordinances. We have the, the book of the prophets. We have the law of God. God is with us forever. I mean, how could this word fail? Here was a promise of eternal favor. The house of Israel was going through, you see. All they had to do was stay with the house. <laughs> Just stay with the house. But like many today, they overlooked the conditions upon which the promise was made. The Desire of Ages, page 106, it says... To a people in whose hearts his law is written, the favor of God is assured. They are one with him. To who? People who in their hearts the law of God is written. That means someone who is converted. Someone who is following the truth, the life, and the way. Someone who has given themselves completely to Christ. They are one with him. But here was a people whose leaders had made of none effect the commandments of God by their tradition. Teaching for doctrine, the theology of men, instead of the truth of God. So Jesus said, Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
And those devout Jews assembled together on the day of Pentecost were following those leaders. Right or wrong, they were following those leaders. And Peter told these men of Israel to repent, to change your mind, come to your senses, cease to be deluded by a false sense of security. He said, study for yourselves. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, trembling. John 8.31 says, continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's what Jesus says. We have to do what? Continue in the word. That doesn't that's not saying, oh, you must continue in the organization no matter what. You must continue in the corporation no matter what. You know, and the admonition of Peter carried the same theme as was sounded by John the Baptist. Remember when he prepared the way for the ministry of Christ. John told his hearers in Matthew 3, verses 8 and 9, he said, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. It's interesting that the margin says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits answerable to an amendment of life. Isn't that interesting? In other words, get this theory out of your mind that you are and always will be the favorites of heaven, for God is able of stones to raise up children of Abraham. And Peter preached with even greater conviction than John. Because he had heard Jesus himself declare in Matthew 23 and verse 38, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. Your house is no longer God's house. He didn't say, my house. He said, your house is left unto you desolate. And the temple veil had been rent in the apartment of the unseen presence to be gazed upon by human eyes with no fear of retribution. There's no record of any priest dying because they looked in. That's because God was not there. And besides changing their way of thinking, called repentance, the devout Jews were to make an outward confession which would publicly declare their change of thought. Each one who changed his mind, what did Peter say? They were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's remember that among those who were there assembled to hear Peter were what are called proselytes. These people had been baptized as a symbol of their acceptance into Judaism so as to be numbered among the house of Israel, that corporate body. Now they were told to repent and be baptized again. And with the other devout Jews who had also changed their thinking, who would by this act change their identity from the corporation of Israel to the corporation of Christ. And only thus could they find um, remission for the sin, of, the sin of the ages, friends, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth which was in reality the crucifixion of truth. They were doing the desire of their father the devil, who the Bible says abode not in the truth, John eight forty four. 
And let me say that rebaptism of devout Seventh day Adventists, when truth is understood and experienced, is also called for when they remove themselves from a fallen corporation into the corporation of truth. You can read about it in Evangelism, the book of Evangelism, page 375. The same can be said of those who have come into a knowledge of the true Sabbath. Now, of course, it's an individual decision, and we must let the Holy Spirit do His work in that regard. Amen? Peter concluded his advice and counsel by telling those convicted in Acts 2.40, he said, save themselves from this crooked generation, is what he said. Now, in doing that, in saying that, Peter was bringing together a concept from the Pentateuch and a charge that both Jesus um, and John the Baptist had used in, in their confrontation there with the, the Jewish hierarchy. You know, Moses had written that God was the rock, remember, upon which Israel was founded, a God of truth. But Israel had corrupted themselves and had become a perverse and crooked generation. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 and 5. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of His children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. So both John... And Jesus had zeroed in on the why of Israel's predicament. John the Baptist, seeing many of the Pharisees and Sadducees among his listeners, remember, they came out, he spoke directly to them. And he used the symbol of, in this particular case, crookedness. What was it that he said? Remember? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now Jesus was even more empathetic. Addressing the scribes of the law and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 33, he declared, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Thus, Peter, knowing through the Holy Spirit the damnation upon the hierarchy, warned those who did not wish to be included in the corporate guilt and thus the corporate judgment to save themselves from that crooked generation. And those who responded to the counsel of Peter, they were baptized, signifying the passing from the corpus of Israel to the Corpus Christi, the Church of Israel, to the Church of Christ. And as we read in Acts 2.41, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Acts, and maybe verse 42. So they continued. Remember, that's what, that's what Paul thought he was doing. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and he was telling later, he's saying, I have followed what God has showed me. I have followed the truth. And then he was called, you know, the ringleader of that sect of the Nazarenes. 
And so through Christ, friends, the truth, and by the coming of the Spirit of truth, the original faith was restored to men. There was no more need for these devout men to follow traditions and, and perverted concepts of the scribes and Pharisees. The truth is given by the rock of Israel became the basis of the Corpus Christi, the corporation of Christ. Friends, in the final hour of human history, when the power of the enemy to deceive the world would appear to be supreme, supreme, in early writings, pages 88 and 89, she says, it seemed the whole world was on board that there could be uh, not be one left. She was advised to look in an opposite direction. And what did she see? It says there, in early writings, it says, she saw a little company traveling a narrow pathway. All seemed to be firmly united, bound together by what? She says, by the truth. They were bound together by the truth. In bundles or companies. Said the angel, the third angel is binding or sealing them in bundles for the heavenly gardener. Thus the basis of the final revelation of the Corpus Christi the corpus, corporation of Christ is the same as it was at the beginning, friends. Truth, pure and unadulterated. And this group that's being spoken of, the remnant, brought about by the third angel. Hebrews 12.22 says, They come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And these realize that the Jerusalem, which now is, is in bondage with their children. And unless they change their mind, unless they repent, beloved, they shall reap the same reward. For, you know, because they transfer their allegiance and loyalty to the Jerusalem, they need to, to the Jerusalem which is above, which is free. As Paul says, which is the mother of us all. They must leave the corporation of Satan and its corporate guilt and join the corporation of Christ where they are made guiltless. And where do we find the answer to the question, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent, be baptized. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18, we're told to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Friends, if you find yourself on the wrong side here, in the wrong corporation, I pray that you heed the answer that Peter has given. Repent and be baptized and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we pray, Father, that you forgive us as a people for our sins, for the sins of leadership. If we find ourselves in a fallen corporation, the corporation of Adam, 
We pray for the strength and courage to stand up. Take individual responsibility. And if moved by the Holy Spirit to leave, as you've shown the principle of corporate guilt, give us the strength to do that and to stand on the truth no matter what. For the truth is Jesus. And He has our heart. Please continue to be with us throughout this Sabbath day and bless us, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is. We ask this favor in His name. Amen. Amen and amen. I want to thank those who have joined us over Facebook uh, today. Those who have joined us on uh, YouTube. May God continue to bless us. We will see you next time right here. Take care.